Hello, and welcome to the Cutting Edge Issues podcast from the Department of International Development at the London School of Economics and Political Science. These podcasts are recordings from the Cutting Edge Issues in Development, Thinking and Practice lecture series 2020 to 2021. That was a visiting lecture series coordinated by me, Duncan Green, Professor in Practice in the department, with Professor of Development Studies, Professor James Putzel. The Cutting Edge series provides students and guests with invaluable insights into the practical world of international development, with experts sharing their expertise and advice discussion on an exciting range of issues from responses to the COVID-19 pandemic to climate change policy to decolonizing academia. During the academic year 2020-21, we moved the series online, which meant we could host fantastic speakers from around the world and stream the series online, opening up the lectures to a global audience. I hope you enjoy the lecture. So, I was thinking about who our speakers uh, today, and uh, basically it's like anti-corruption fantasy football. If you had to come up with your best team, the people you would really want to put you know, out and back and put money on, I would choose our two speakers. Um, the topic is getting under the skin of this word, corruption, and this other word, anti-corruption. Um, and I think both of them do it brilliantly in different ways. So let me introduce the main speaker and then the discussant. So the main speaker is Yuanyuan Ang. She's a professor of political science and a China scholar at the University of Michigan. And she's won loads and loads of prizes. Um, I, she's asked me not to sort of list them all, um, but just one. She was the first recipient of the Theda Scott Paul Prize by the American Political Science Association for impactful empirical, theoretical, and or methodological contributions to the study of comparative politics. And I must say she writes better than the American Political Science Association, judging by that, um, that line. Uh, her first award-winning book was How China Escapes the Poverty Trap. And this is how we met uh, when I reviewed it and thought, this is amazing. This is somebody who's taken systems thinking, complexity thinking, and applied it to understanding China in a whole new way. And that's won loads of prizes. But she's actually here to talk about um, uh, the, the, the thinking behind her second book, which is called China's Gilded Age, which was published last year. And so she's going to talk about the evolution of corruption and compared corruption in China, corruption in the West, and how there's kind of the, the way she's come to think of corruption. Our discussant is also in my fantasy football team, right at the top, Amushtak Khan. He's a professor of economics at SOAS at the University of London, and executive director of a FCDO-funded program called the Anti-Corruption Evidence, ACE, get it? Anti-Corruption Evidence Research Consortium. Um, he's a leading thinker on anti-corruption, governance, economic development, and he's synonymous with this phrase, political settlements, which I'm sure will crop up at some point tonight. Um, so welcome, both of you. Yuen Yuen's going to talk for about 40 minutes. Uh, then I'll hand over to Mushtaq Khan for 10 minutes. So Yuen Yuen, over to you. Well, thank you very much, Professor Green, for inviting me. Um, among other things, I'm really grateful to Duncan for writing a review of my first book because he writes a thousand times better than me. And he was able to explain the complexity implications of the book so much better than I can. Um, I'm also really delighted to have Professor Khan here. Um, anyone who works on corruption would know his work. So it's a real privilege to see friends at LSE again. Um, the last time I spoke at LSE before the pandemic, 
um, I talked about my first book, which was called How China Escaped the Poverty Trap. And this new book, China's Gilded Age, is a sequel. And it comes right out of one page of my first book, where I ask whether corruption was eradicated as a place becomes richer. And my intuitive answer at the time was no. Corruption doesn't actually disappear with capitalist modernization. It only changes in structure and form. And that, I argue, is not unique to China, but it's also found in the history of the West. So this second book flashes out that one-page insight. And today, in order to unpack this argument, I'm going to start with revisiting the very concept of corruption. And I'm going to unbundle corruption into different types and show how we can measure them across countries. Let me state a basic observation. Corruption is the worst problem in development. But corruption comes in many different forms, some more visible than others. So before the pandemic, I visited Nigeria. And as soon as I landed at the airport, I was asked to pay a bribe. And these are the kinds of instances where corruption is brazen, it's in your face, and it makes you angry. But then there is also the invisible kind of corruption. For example, during the pandemic, the New York Times revealed that about half of the pandemic spending in the UK went to companies with political connections and no prior experience. And yet, despite the fact that corruption comes in many different forms, standard indices such as the CPI, the Corruption Perception Index, conceptualizes and measures corruption as a one-dimensional problem, ranging from zero to 100. And in this approach, rich countries are consistently ranked as clean, so corruption appears to be a problem that you only find in poor countries. Then when these indices are used in regressions, it confirms the rigorous relationship between corruption and poverty. And that's how we arrive at the impression that corruption is always bad for growth. Now, in principle, we should measure what we value. Yet the reality is often the opposite. We value what we can measure. And because corruption is always measured as a one-dimensional quantity, and because development is measured as GDP, this has led us to become fixated with quantities of corruption and with GDP. Instead, we should be looking at the quality of corruption and the effects of corruption on the economy beyond GDP. So these are the gaps that I want to address. And I do so by unbundling corruption. Now, we know that there are many existing typologies of corruption out there. But what's missing is an attempt to actually measure these different types of corruption across country. This is a basic step, but it is important because without an alternative index, bundled measures will continue to have hegemonic influence because people have no other choice. So to this end, I introduce a pilot product that I call the Unbundled Corruption Index. 
And I stress that this is a pilot because it is meant to be a first step. And I invite everyone else to think about and improve on this effort. And why does this measurement matter? Because it allows us to systematically compare structures of corruption. And with that information, we can explain why some corrupt countries like China have experienced rapid growth, but with risk and imbalances. So let me begin by walking you through my theory of unbundling corruption. In my book, I offer a simple four-part typology divided along two dimensions. And the first dimension is whether this corruption involves elites or non-elites. For example, the president and his family versus street-level police officers. And then the second dimension is whether this corruption involves exchange or theft. Corruption with theft, such as extortion and embezzlement, is a one-way street. Only the corrupt official benefits and no one else does. So this type of corruption directly and unambiguously hurts growth. On the other hand, in corruption with exchange, such as bribery, two parties have something to gain from each other. The intersection of these two dimensions creates four varieties of corruption. First, petty theft. For example, extortion. Second, grand theft. For example, embezzlement. And third, speed money. These are petty bribes paid to low-level officials to overcome a delay or hurdle. For example, to get a license faster. And then the fourth variety is what I call access money, which is not the same as speed money. Access money are lavish perks paid to powerful officials, not just for speed, but for exclusive lucrative deals. For example, cheap land, government contracts, lax regulations, tax breaks. When companies pay for access, it is not a tax, but more like an investment. Now, unlike speed money, access money is wide ranging. It can be legal and institutionalized. But in developing countries like China, access money is still mostly illegal and personal, manifesting in the form of massive bribes. Like drugs, different types of corruption harm in different ways. Petty theft and grand theft are equivalent to toxic drugs. They're the most damaging because they drain public and private wealth. A speed money is not as bad as petty and grand theft, but it does not spur business activities. You can think of it as painkillers. It lessens pain, helps you get over annoyances, but it does not help you grow. Access money, on the other hand, are the steroids of capitalism. Steroids are known as growth-enhancing drugs, but such drugs come with serious side effects over time. Historically, we have seen the side effects play out in places around the world. Crony capitalism and state capture contributed to the first great economic depression in the U.S. in 1837, the Asian financial crisis in 1997, 
and most recently, the 2008 U.S. financial crisis. So to sum up, corruption comes in different types with different harm. So please don't walk away from this presentation with the wrong message that corruption is good. That is not what I'm saying. Now, with this framework in mind, the next step is how do we go about measuring these four types of corruption across countries? Let's first consider existing methods. Now, there are two common ways of measuring corruption. The first is cross-national indices or large N measures. They cover a large number of countries and can be used in statistical regressions. And then the second is typologies with representative cases selected by the author or small n studies. And each is problematic in a different way. I want to begin by saying that global indices like the CPI have done a great public service by bringing attention to the problem of corruption. And to create a cross-national perception measure takes a lot of time and work. And having tried to make one myself, I know how hard it is. But the CPI's concept and measurement of corruption is problematic, even misleading. First of all, you should know that the CPI is a perception-based measure based on experts. But this survey is not done in-house. Rather, it is aggregated from existing third-party sources which means that the CPI has no control over their methods. And secondly, the CPI gives a single corruption score to every country and does not distinguish among different types. And this is like sausage making. The different meats are just mushed into one sausage. And the third is an issue that existing critiques have not pointed out which is that the design and wording of the surveys that the CPI uses is problematic. For example, the World Competitiveness Yearbook is one of CPI's sources in 2016, and it asks senior business leaders a single terse question. Bribery and corruption exist or do not exist? Now imagine if you were asked to answer this question for the UK, China, or Kenya, what would you say? And here's another example from the EIU's country risk ratings. Are there general abuses of public resources? And again, this is the kind of vague wording that makes you go, hmm. And so my point is, if the question is not clear, the answers could not be illuminating. Then another way of classifying corruption is found in small n studies. And strictly speaking, they're not measurements, but classification. One example is Andrew Wiedemann's typology of corruption, which he divides into looting, rent scrapping, and dividend sharing. For each category, he selects a representative case, Zaire, the Philippines, and South Korea. I really like his typology, and I assigned it in my class for many years. And this kind of approach is also found in many classic studies in political economy, including Asik Moklu and Robinson on extractive versus non-extractive regimes, and Wallace, Knopf, and Weingast on closed versus open access regimes. 
But the problem with this approach is, how do you know that the author has selected the right case? In instances like Zaire, that may be relatively easy to classify. But what if you have a case like China? Then where does it fit? And also, is it true that each country can only fit in one category? Just take the case of China. If you ask different experts where does China fit, they'll give you totally different answers. So Andrew Wiedemann argues that China conforms to the worst examples of endemic and destructive corruption found in the developing world. Another observer, Sun Yan, argues that corruption is less costly in China than in Russia, and Huang Yukan argues. Corruption in China made it easier to do business. So who's right and who's wrong? So we can see that for a better measure and classification of corruption, these are some of the issues that we need to address. Expert opinion is indispensable for measuring corruption across countries, but their assessment has to be guided and structured. Rather than simply asking people to rate corruption in a blanket way, like China corrupt or not corrupt, so these are the issues that I will tackle in my research design. To correct these problems, I created my own index, the Unbundled Corruption Index, or UCI. Instead of giving a bundled score, I ask country experts to rate the prevalence of the four categories of corruption in my framework. These experts include area specialists, journalists, senior business executives who know a particular country well.、Uh, instead of asking the experts to rate corruption using one blanket question, I pose a series of stylized vignettes. And one example is inspired by the scandal of the Chinese politician Bo Xilai, and it captures excess money in this way. By cultivating close ties with a powerful official and paying for his family's expenses, a business person gains monopoly access to public construction projects. How common do you think this type of scenario is in this country today? And the advantage of using a vignette is that it ensures that the expert readers are thinking about the same scenario rather than imagining different concepts of. Corruption in their head, and at the same time, I try to pick vignettes that represent a broader set of cases. So here's a different example, inspired by a New York Times report about the practice of revolving doors in the U.S. And it reads: Major figures move back and forth between the public and the private sector, and there are no laws forbidding this practice. How common do you think this type of scenario is in your country today? And then, after posing a series of vignettes, I aggregate the results by category, and then visualize them in this format. And here, I use China as the, as the example. The total UCI score is indicated at the top left in brackets. On top of that, you can see the composition of corruption distributed over the four categories, and as you can see, China has all types of corruption, and indeed every country does. But the most dominant type, colored in orange, is access money.
So my pilot includes 15 countries, including India, Nigeria, Brazil, South Korea. It allows us to compare not only the overall levels of corruption, but also its composition and dominant type. And as I emphasized in the beginning, this is a pilot effort, meaning there's a lot of room for change and improvement. For example, in future, we can compare whether the differences in scores are statistically significant. We can also design much better vignettes that are comparable across cultures. But for now, my emphasis is on first improving the questionnaire design and visualizing the results in a way that is easy to read. Now, even though this was a pilot, it turns out that it took a lot of work to conduct this survey. And it helps me to understand why there had been so few or even no alternatives to the CPI. So I wanted to take a moment to thank all of the expert respondents who took time from their busy schedule to take the survey. And now we get to the fun part of exploring insights from this pilot exercise. First, I zoom in on a pad comparison of China and India. This is very interesting because the two countries have nearly identical total scores, and they are almost always rank equal on the CPI. Yet their patterns of corruption diverge. In India, the most dominant type of corruption is speed money, paying petty bribes to overcome delays. Whereas in China, access money, elite exchanges of power and wealth prevails. And why is that? Now, this quote from a high-level official in New Delhi is revealing. And he says, if you want me to move a file faster, I'm not sure if I can help you. But if you want me to stop a file, I can do it immediately. And what his quote implies is that regime type appears to matter. Because India is a fragmented democracy, officials have the power to veto, but not to make unilateral decisions. So bribes are paid to overcome the many hurdles created by the bureaucracy. In China, it is the opposite. Power is concentrated. Local leaders are described as human bulldozers who can tear down and build and allocate vast resources at will. So bribes are paid to them to open doors and waive restrictions. Now put differently, in India, bribes are imposed to prevent things from being built. Whereas in China, bribes are collected to get things built. Next, we come to a comparison of China and the United States. As you can see overall, the US has less corruption than China, but in both, Access money is the most dominant type of corruption. Then there is a deeper nuance. The type of access money that prevails in each country is different. Now, each category has about five subtypes of vignettes. So let me zoom in on two examples to illustrate. So one of the vignettes I ask is a top politician is linked to an extensive network of former associates, protégés, and family members who monopolize power in certain sectors of the economy, while the politician himself never receives bribes, a massive amount of bribes flow through his network. So I'm using this vignette to capture corruption that is centered around powerful figures and patron-client relations. 
And here you can see that China scores much higher on this type of corruption compared to the U.S. But when we look at a different vignette, the one about revolving doors, major figures move back and forth between the public and private sector, with no laws forbidding this practice. That is actually switched around. This type of access money is much more prevalent in the U.S. than in China. So what that goes to say is that access money in the U.S. is highly institutionalized, whereas in China it's still highly personalized and centered around particular powerful individuals. Finally, here is a simple comparison of two scatter plots. Let me repeat. Speed money means petty bribes paid to low-level bureaucrats to skip over hurdles and red tape and avoid harassment. Yeah. Um, another common term used to describe speed money is greasing the wheels. Economists also refer to this form of corruption as a tax, in that it creates an additional expense for businesses. Now, there is no surprise that when you look at the correlation between speed money and low income, that correlation is very high. So, speed money is rampant in poor countries, but it is rare and almost non-existent in rich countries. Now, conversely, access money means lavish perks paid to powerful officials for lucrative, exclusive privileges. And access money should not be confused with the common phrase "greasing the wheels," because it's more appropriate to understand this activity as sludge rather than grease. Corrupt, powerful officials are not going to care for grease. Another distinction is that access money is not a tax, but better understood as an investment. For example, the New York Times ran a story about businesses lining up at the Trump Tower to ask the former president for favors. And similarly, in China, there are stories of invisible lines of individuals wanting to meet with powerful officials. If this corruption is a tax, nobody will queue up for it. They are in line because it is an investment that will help them do more business. And make more profit. So when it comes to access money, the correlation between this corruption and income is noticeably less tight. Meaning, some rich countries actually have moderately high levels of access money, with the U.S. being one example. Now, why do some rich countries have more access money than others? I don't know. And I don't think that the existing research has fully examined this question. That's because we spend so much of our time and attention on speed money, the kind of corruption found in poor countries. So this is one example of the many new questions that we should be asking once we unbundle corruption.、Uh, in conclusion, what have we learned from unbundling corruption? First. We learned that countries with identical total corruption scores can have divergent corruption structures, and a good example is China and India. Secondly, not all systems of access money are the same. 
This form of corruption is institutional and even legal in the U.S., but in China, it is highly personalized and illegal. The structure of corruption, rather than just the perceived total levels, matters for economic outcomes, including inequality. So this knowledge can help us to make sense of important real-world cases. The story of China is not just about corruption coexisting with growth, but specifically corruption with risky imbalance growth. The part about risk and imbalance cannot be taken out of the story because it's part of the whole package. So, how did China arrive at this outcome? First, you should know that over time. Chinese corruption evolved to an access money, while growth-damaging types of corruption like embezzlement and petty bribery were contained. Data on prosecuted corruption cases gives us some insight into this structural evolution, and this is a figure that shows you the number of corruption cases from 1998 to 2014. The line in black: corruption with exchange measures bribery. Corruption with theft includes embezzlement and misuse of public funds. The patterns are clear. In 1998, there were many more cases of corruption with theft than with exchange. In that year, the central government rolled out comprehensive administrative reforms to build capacity and fight corruption with theft. The effects are dramatic. They have declined since 2000. At the same time, however, as China embraced global capitalism, the private sector grew. The government also grew more dependent on taxless forms of finance, dependent on the sale of land. So, in this context, bribery exploded and has involved larger sums of money and more senior officials. In China, access money provided the financial rewards for powerful officials to strive for rapid growth.、Now, officials were easily caught and punished for engaging in corruption with theft, like embezzlement. But it was in access money that they could derive the biggest rents. The more they built and the more development projects they had, the more capitalists wanted to pay them. And it was easier to monetize this power in some sectors over others. That is why you see an infrastructure boom and proliferation of construction and real estate in China since the 2000s. This activity has driven growth, but it also comes with mounting debt, inequality, and misallocation of capital. So, as a result. What we see in China today is a mixed outcome. It is a high-growth economy, but it also comes with risk and imbalances. Is China unique? Not at all. All of the slides that I have just shown you fits the case of 19th-century America perfectly. You can take stories from the American Gilded Age and change the American names to Chinese name, and you would think that it is describing China. Both Gilded Ages saw rampant corruption with rapid growth and serious inequities. Both controlled corruption with theft over time. 
Both were dominated by access money, and both derived corruption from building more and doing more business, not less. So here's the final takeaway: contrary to popular beliefs, the rise of capitalism was not accompanied by the eradication of corruption, but rather by the evolution of corruption from thuggery and theft toward access money. And China is a relative newcomer on this evolutionary path. So, by reflecting on China's experience today, we are forced to revisit textbook narratives about how the West really became rich. And this, I think, recalls Hajun Chang's brilliant book, "Kicking Away the Leather," where he argues that rich countries did not really become rich by adopting the free trade policies that they advocate today. Challenging the conventional wisdom about corruption also helps us not only to understand China, but also to come to terms with the problems facing rich democracies today. Rising inequality and discontent has a lot to do with unequal political influence. In that sense, we may be living in a twenty-first-century gilded age. So, if you're interested to find out more about unbundling corruption, you can find an article version on my website. And if you have only three minutes to browse, you can read a blog summary at OECD. Thank you very much for listening, and I look forward to your questions. Fantastic, Yana, and that's absolute class in how to deliver a brilliant message very clearly online. You were saying before we started that we all need to. Learn how to do these things well. You've clearly already learned. That was great, Musa. Before I come to you, I just want to say to people: Could you start putting your questions in the chat box, and we'll start.、Uh, so once Mushtaq's ma-、uh, made some remarks, we'll then switch off YouTube, move to Q and A. And so, if you get your questions in now, you'll be top of the queue. So、uh, please feel free. And、uh, Jeff Goodwin, I think, is kindly going to、uh, harvest the questions and give them to me. Um, and then I'll get the people who are asking the questions to come on camera and off mic, or on mic rather, and ask the questions. Mushtaq, would you like to、um, turn on your camera and mic and go for it? Thank you.、Um, really, I mean, this was fascinating, very interesting, and in many respects, I agree with this framework entirely. I mean, I've been another one of those advocates who have been saying. Um, corruption is embedded in the very nature of the operation of a capitalist market economy, and indeed many of the things that UN is, is talking about. So instead of repeating what we agree about, let me focus on some of the things that I think deserve a deeper look.、Um, and I don't think UN has come across my work on the classification of corruption. It's in an obscure、um, handbook of. Um, the economics of corruption by Susan Rose Ackerman many years ago, and in that Susan Rose Ackerman book, I put forward a, a classification of corruption which is quite similar to yours, but which we now use in the ACE um, um, research agenda. And the difference is that we. So I think the number of big points you are making. The first point you are making is that、um, forms of rent seeking operate everywhere. So in advanced countries. That rent-seeking, that influencing of how decisions are made and who gets the contracts and so on, is happening. But in advanced countries, that rent-seeking happens through legal processes. That is, processes that are 
at least formally legal, like this revolving door systems or um, and so on, although they might be verging on informal influence and, and corruption, but a lot of it is, is legal. In developing countries, a lot of that influencing is itself illegal because the nature of these economies are largely informal. And in our work, we stress a lot on the informality of developing countries and the informality of businesses, which makes them structurally illegal. So this is one really important point you are making that perhaps we should be focusing really on the rent-seeking processes and not whether they are formally legal or formally illegal. And if you do that, then you find lots of common things between early stage and later stage developing countries. I, I completely agree with you there if I've understood you right. You've also talked about power and the importance of power. Uh, and that's at the heart of uh, our classification of corruption. Let me point out a few areas where we would um, maybe push you a bit and get more clarity. First issue is, I think that the distinction between elites and non-elites is quite difficult to operationalize. So if you take the typical developing country, the most powerful people might not be at the top of society, right? And everyone is networked with everyone else. So you might be paying a, a bribe or doing a transaction with a low-level bureaucrat, but that bureaucrat, you know, is connected with some high-level bureaucrat. And, and the way it works is that these networks are are very strongly but informally connected. So I think in a practical sense, finding out whether your bribe is being collected, you know, the, the, the person in, in the airport who is picking up your bribe isn't just pocketing it. Uh, this money flows right up the chain to some very, very senior people. And that is why they have that job at the airport. So, so these, these systems of, of extraction are networked and integrated and what matters is the relative power of these networks, not whether the person you are transacting with is mid-level, high-level, or low-level. This is one operational problem. The next problem is, what do you mean by theft? And I think a, a lot um, rely, it depends on, on that definition. Because, the, you know, let me then dig into one particular aspect of this two-by-two uh, two model, which I find particularly intriguing and which is at the heart of your analysis of the Gilded Age, and that is the access money box, right? The access money box is where elites are, are engaged in exchange, and this exchange is at the heart of how capitalism works. Yes and no, because what, you, what we find in all our developing countries is that that exchange between the powerful bureaucrats and politicians and businesses can have very different outcomes. And you need to really look at the internal power configuration here to understand the nature of the outcomes. So we actually start not by looking at who is transacting and are they stealing or not, but we look at the rent, the, the nature of the economic resource and what is it, it, what is it that they're being, being um, uh, bargaining over? So, for example, you could have a situation which you describe that a business gets uh, its business facilitated by powerful people who then get a share of the profits, which is a bit like this profit sharing idea of Wedemann and so on. However, a lot of this access money type elite exchanges in developing countries of the type that we look at, the Nigerias, the Bangladeshis and so on, is a, is a transaction between elites and businesses which are protecting inefficiency, which are protecting infant industries which don't grow up, 
which is protecting um, it's protecting a form of business. It's, it is an exchange. It's not theft. Both sides are benefiting, but they are benefiting in a way that is actually preventing the growth of this capitalism. Right now, this is a, a really so you couldn't call it theft because it's not theft. These businesses are exchanging things with politicians, and the politicians are giving them resources. It is a form of access money, but the underlying business model here is negative. And and in our work, that is a really fundamental difference, right? So, how and and uh, as you know, the ACE approach is really trying to ask: How do you make some of these transactions, which are potentially extremely damaging, less damaging by trying to change the incentives of these informal networks bargaining over these policy rents and the land and the interest rates and so on? Those negotiations are critical. And I think that to call it the steroids of capitalism is misleading because they can also be the toxic poison of capitalism. So, and I think you would agree that steroids can be extremely damaging. So in many countries, that access money is what is killing the growth of capitalism. Look at what is happening in India now with the connections between big business and um, the state. A lot of it is access money, but inadvertently or, or quite deliberately, they are harming many sectors of the economy by cornering markets and creating monopolies. And, and that's not theft. It's a form of exchange, but it's a form of exchange that is extremely damaging in terms of its spillover effects. So I would say we need to really break apart this box of access money into many more components and look at the underlying logic of how business and power, powerful bureaucratic and economic interests are um, and in a sense, you know, it, this is why I'm a little um, um, suspicious of the categorizations in your boxes where you say there is not uh, that much access money in Bangladesh. The problem is how do you then measure this access money? Access money in India and Bangladesh is massive. It's just that a lot of it is very damaging. So you can then automatically put it into the box of theft, but actually it's not theft because these are exchanges. So we have to be very careful that our categories are not fitting into what we are trying to explain, right? And there is a, a real danger of doing that in all corruption studies. So these are not countries growing, so it must be more theft and less access money. But actually, it, in our, my, my perspective, perspective, it is access money, but it is very damaging access money. So this, was, this would be one point. And I think to understand how this uh, exchange between powerful business and powerful um, politics and bureaucrats is happening, you then need the political settlement um, frame, which looks at the relative bargaining power and capabilities. So the political settlement is simply a description of the relative power and capabilities of these players. So when does access money become productive? It's when the players can take a long-term view, they have the power to implement things, and they have the capabilities to, trans trans uh, to transform these investments into profits. Now, the problem in many developing countries is these conditions are missing. The businesses have very low capabilities. The politicians, and you mentioned this in India, you know, it's a fragmented polity and all that. And that's exactly right. So the powerful have short-term interests. They have very limited um, implementation power. The businesses they're dealing with often have low capabilities. So the transactions they do there, the access money that they're, they're, they're circulating, results in extremely bad outcomes. So once you include this networks of power and, and so on, I would say that actually it would be wrong to put those things into the box of grand theft. Grand theft is 
where you have extraction. You know, someone simply captures the resource and takes away. That also happens in these badly performing countries. But a lot of it is badly structured um, policy um, negotiations where the political settlement is not conducive to the good development outcomes. So I think that's basically the point. But overall, I think the analytical frame that you have is very much aligned with um, what we are doing. And, and I think there could be a lot of mutual learning from each other's work. Um, I completely agree with you very strongly that you, know, you don't have this kicking away the ladder position that you first have to get rid of corruption through some magic process before you can develop. But in most developing countries, which don't have China's or South Korea's political settlement with its rather unique um, configuration of political power and capabilities, the problem is much more severe. And the problem is much more severe because the elites, the powerful, the people who you think should be using their capacity to do access money to make um, economic development happen, are incapable of doing that, not because they are not aware of the problem, but because they're actually incapable of doing that. And here, the, the task of research is more complicated because what could be discovered in this evolutionary way in learning by doing that you described so well in your first book, that evolutionary learning by doing doesn't happen in an India or a Bangladesh or a Nigeria, not because people don't know that, that they could do this, but every evolution gets blocked. Every evolution gets into new forms of unproductive access money. And I think this is where research needs to really help by, by unblocking some of these things and identifying these niche areas where actually the, the intervention, given the configuration of power, can result in some improvements in outcomes, which can then have spillover effects. And that's what we try to do in ACE. So in a sense, it's aligned with what you're saying, but also different in some you know, issues of detail. But perhaps these issues of detail are not real. And once you explain and define your categories, we'll find that actually we don't have anything to disagree about at all. So I, I'm very happy that we're having this exchange so we can clarify these minor glitches. But the overall thing is I'm entirely in agreement with your framework. Thank you. I mean, that's, again, fantastic um, comments and thoughts. Yuan Yuan, you were so concise in your initial lecture that actually there's time if you want because I've got a feeling that the people on YouTube will want to hear a response as well. Um, if you're ready for that, perhaps you'd like to respond to Mushtaq and then we'll go to the Q&A. We've also, if you thought you were getting off early, sorry, there's a lot of questions in Q&A. <laughs> All right. Perhaps you want to, I, you want to respond to Mushtaq first? Sure, sure. I, I think let me begin by um, responding to Professor Khan because he his comments are quite extensive and then we can go to the Q&A. How's that? Yes. Right. Okay, great. Well, thank you very much, Mushta, for sharing your um, very insightful comments. And um, yeah, I am, of course, aware of your work in, in ACE and your writings on corruption. Let me begin by uh, clarifying a few misunderstandings and then going into the bigger substantive issues uh, that you've mentioned. Uh, you mentioned that uh, Bangladesh in Bangladesh, access money is low. Uh, that is a misunderstanding. If you go back to look at the chart, Bangladesh has high corruption in all four categories and access money is very high. And the second thing I need to clarify is that the scores are not given by me. 
right? So the, the, the numbers that you see, I didn't arbitrarily say Bangladesh is this, China is that. It's not me. This is an expert opinion survey. So for every country, we have a certain number of experts to rate these uh, stylized vignettes, which I then combine to a score. So, so this is not about my subjective, arbitrary opinion of where countries fit. And indeed, if you look at my presentation, my point is to actually correct the very common approach in qualitative studies where uh, people say, this is my framework and I think Bangladesh fits here. I'm actually precisely trying to correct that kind of arbitrary practices. So that is a factual clarification about your comment. And then in, and then my response on a couple of substantive points that you have made. Um, first of all, it's about the framework of unbundling corruption itself. And I want to begin by saying that there is tremendous amount of work on typologies of corruption. And if you look at my framework, it's actually absorbing, you know, the, the wisdom of all of the typologies out there, including your own work. But I wanted to make a few differences to what already has been done. And I think one of the things that is very important, as I said in the presentation, is we have to come up with a good way of actually measuring these types across countries. There are really a lot of typologies. Jennifer Bustle at um, UC Berkeley has an article actually summarizing these typologies, and there are actually, uh, I think, more than 30 of them. So we have no lack of people uh, debating about what is staff, what is exchange, and I think, you know, corruption should have this dimension of that. We have no lack of these debates. But what we have definitely been lacking is the empirical effort to actually measure them. And I think that this is very basic, but really important, because if you don't have an alternative to the CPI or the risk indicators that companies and um, academics use for regressions, then people are going to continue to fixate on the quantity of corruption because there is just no alternative. And so that is why I put a lot of effort in my first chapter, just at this framework and how do you go about measuring it. And I know measurement is a kind of a dry, really dry and uninteresting topic. Um, but then, as I said, if you can measure it, it becomes what everyone values. So when we seek to measure something, we do need to strike a balance between nuance and parsimony. Right. So if you have 25 categories, that's not good for measurement because that just becomes overwhelming. And even if you collect 25 categories, the user can't make sense of it, right? Because it's just too much. And that's why the CPI is so appealing because it has one score and that's really easy to understand, right? So what I want to do in my measurement is I want to have more nuance. So let's go with four, but we're not going to be so nuanced until we have 25. But by having this framework, the advantage of it is that in addition to having a cross-national measure, we can apply this framework to explain specific countries. So China being my main case, where we can take this framework and we can understand several things. We can systematically look at how the structure of corruption evolves using this language. And we can also look at the political economy of corruption in China, as you described, which does vary country by country. So that is the, um, so that is the theoretical design that I had in mind, that we do have to balance these things between nuance and parsimony. You can't make everything super detailed at every point in time. It does need to be sequential. And then my third comment is about what 
exactly is my measurement and index trying to do over and above the other typologies that have been offered? And again, I emphasize that we can all sit down and debate about, you know, I think that elites are these, non-elites are these. I, I, I think that this is extraction. I think that this is TEF. What I want to do is, here's my typology. We are free to debate about whether we agree on the dimensions. But my particular focus is, assuming that you, you kind of, let's say you accept my typology for now, how do you actually go about measuring it in a way that is systematic and rigorous? And I think that's what the, that's, that's one of the key contributions I wanted to make. So from the approach that I've shown you, one of the things I wanted to do is uh, concreteness, right? So we talk about typologies and often these grand terms like grand corruption, petty corruption. And then, and then we ask people like, how corrupt is China? And really in their heads, people are thinking about different things. So that is why I wanted to use a stylized vignette to make sure that the expert readers are thinking about the same thing. So that brings concreteness into the measure. And then the other advantage of my approach is that because I use stylized vignettes, it is actually really flexible. So if you disagree with the particular vignettes that I pick, you can create your own. And in that way, you can kind of mix and match the different vignettes to create the categories and so forth. But regardless of whether we are in theoretical agreement or not, the measurement strategy remains, right? The use of the stylized vignettes, the visualization strategy, those things remain and I think can be used across the board in many political economy studies, regardless of whether we agree or disagree on kind of specific definitions of issues. So, um, and you can find all of the vignettes on my website where I have an appendix of all of them. And actually now in hindsight, when I look at them, I'm like, ah, some of these vignettes are not that good, you know? I would change them or I would add some new ones. And the vignettes are also quite, I think, specific to regions. So Bangladesh might have a vignette that's specific to South Asia. China has its own. So that's actually what I want to do with this UCI is it's a template and it's, it's modular. It's modular in the sense that people can build on it. Uh, so I welcome people to you know, use their expertise to contribute vignettes and say, you know, I want to change the categories a little here, you know, change the vignettes. But the overall logic and structure remains, and it provides a constructive way to measure corrupt types of corruption across countries. And I think that's really important work. And then my final comment is about the different forms of access money you talked about and how it's embedded in political economy. That is exactly what I discuss in the rest of the book. So what I've shown you is only one chapter of it. And that one chapter is meant to present the framework, present the measure, and present a way for us to talk rigorously about structures of corruption across country. Otherwise, we are always stuck in arbitrary debates about, I think China is extremely corrupt. You know, I think China is not that corrupt. And we have no basis for assessing who's right and wrong. So that's why this is the first step. But if you look at the rest of the chapter, what I do is I take the same framework, but then I put it in those political economy contexts that you talked about. So this 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 framework is by no means saying that um, you know every country will will succeed with with access money. In fact, the point that I repeatedly make is that access money um, can 
actually help commercial activities in the sense that it's an investment on the part of the businesses, but it definitely creates distortions. So that's why I call it steroids. So in the case of China, it is embedded in a political economy where officials' careers are tied to development outcomes, where there is a national commitment to growth, formal salaries are low, and in this political economy context, Excess money then provide the financial rewards, right? So, but nevertheless, it does not take away from the merit of understanding access money as a distinct form of corruption from speed money or embezzlement and so forth. And I think it's particularly important to highlight access money, and we can call it other things. We can call it influence paddling or rent seeking. I think it's important to highlight that for cross national studies. Because for so long, people really are reluctant to admit that excess money exists in rich countries, and and I and I really wanted to challenge that 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 perception. And as I've emphasized, excess money exists in very different forms in developed and developing economies. So in developing economies, they they manifest not only in informal ways but in personalized ways. Right, it's very much embedded with personal patron-client relations, including in China. But I think the part about how rent-seeking work in advanced industrial capitalist economies—actually, we don't understand that very well. I, I think that is actually one part of the corruption literature that we have neglected because we have, for a very long time, assumed that corruption is something that happens only to poor countries. And and what I do in my framework is to show that actually it exists in rich countries too. And the interesting thing we learn from a country like China, because it's changing so fast, is that we actually get to see how a single country can go through the stages. So those are the useful things that we can learn. Thank you. Fantastic.、Um, if this if we were in real life, I know this would be one of those evenings where we go down to the restaurant and you two would just. Slug it out until midnight. I'm really sorry we can't do that.、Uh, I've got a feeling you two are going to be in touch with each other outside this meeting. Thanks for tuning in to this lecture recording from the Cutting Edge Issues in Development Thinking and Practice series from 2020 to 2021. To hear more, don't forget to subscribe to our channel on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch any of these lectures back on our YouTube channel. Just search for International Development LSE, and you can stay informed about upcoming events, including the next series of Cutting Edge Issues lectures, by searching for events on the LSE Department of International Development website, or find us on Twitter at lse_id for the latest updates.